Father, uh, we recognize you, uh, that you love us, and you sent your Son, Jesus, you came, and you lived a perfect life, and you died on the cross for us, and you rose from the grave, showing that your death was unlike any other death, that you accomplished something, that you truly are the rescuer, that you died in our place for our sins, that we may have life. You ascend into heaven and you're seating on the throne and you reign. You have all authority. We recognize that. Thank you for sending the Spirit, Holy Spirit, be in us this morning. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. Turn our eyes away from ourselves and to our King. Thank you that we don't have to uh, try to get you to come hang out with us, God. Thank you that you're here. God, I, I really I need your help. And uh, help me to stay faithful to your word. And I pray that, that joy as we leave these doors that we would truly be celebrating today. Thank you for Good Friday. Thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Thank you. You're really alive. Thank you that you're alive. You're our risen Lord. We honor you. We worship you. Thank you. Help me in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, Ralph preached about the king and the kingdom last week. Uh, typically, that's a Palm Sunday sermon. Normally, I preach through the Gospel of John. And, and, uh, and so, I'm not preaching from John today. I'm actually going to preach a Good Friday sermon, so to speak, and in reality, every single week when we come together, it's a Good Friday, it's a it's a, a Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday every single week, because if you leave any of that out, you leave Jesus out, and so if you uh, only have Good Friday, Good Friday is only good because of Sunday. If there is no resurrection, Good Friday is just Friday, and uh, and so we want to uh, just talk about the cross this morning, and uh, so it's a privilege and an honor to be able to do that. Um, couple months from now, uh, what's the date, Cody, that you're bringing me to a Cardinals-Cubs game? Is it May something, May 5th maybe, or something like that? May 5th. Uh, Cody is bringing me to a Cardinals-Cubs game. you got to know the right friends, and when you get good friends that have baseball tickets, you know, all right, that's good. Um, and uh, imagine with me for a second that uh, it's the bottom of the 8th and the Cubs are winning. So you will have to imagine. Uh, um, expand your imagination this morning. Um, the Cubs are winning, and uh, Cody and I, Cody's making fun of me the whole time, and you know, and I'm, I'm just talking to him about 1907 and, and talking about, you know, making Cardinals-Cubs jokes, that's what you do. And uh, uh, it's at the bottom of the eighth inning, one, two, three inning, and you're debating back and forth, do we leave or go, do we stay or do we leave? Because, you know, traffic in St. Louis, for, for Southern Illinois folks, we don't even like Carbondale traffic, much less St. Louis traffic. I mean... Uh, I get nervous, I can't find a parking spot, then I'm mad at everybody because everybody should drive like I do, then the world would be a better place, and um, nobody does, and, uh, and so I can't find it, so we're debating, do we leave, do we, and so uh, just, just uh, let's just say that we leave early, and uh, we go, and, and we hear uh, the crowd start to cheer, and the roar is getting builder, you know, bigger, and we get to the car, and we turn on the radio, and we hear, oh my goodness, the, the, the Cardinals came back, and Cody's crying, I'm celebrating, uh, and uh, it's, it is, it's awesome, but we missed it. Like, we left. And this sermon this morning is kind of like that. 
uh, there's going to be a temptation in you and in me to check out. Okay, it's going to be like that. We're going to get to the bottom of the eighth in this sermon. And we're going to, if we miss, if we check out, if we feel like in our mind we're running to eat or we're going somewhere, uh, we're going to miss the comeback. We're going to miss the good news. And I don't want that for you. I want to fight for the honor of Jesus this morning. And I want to fight for your joy, really. Uh, True joy. Not silly, uh, sentimental happiness uh, that comes and goes based on circumstances. I mean, true, abiding joy. Where is your foundation for all your joy? Why do we sing when we come in here on Sunday mornings? Well, we sing because of Jesus. And if you check out because you don't like Good Friday, you're just going to miss it. So let me plead with you. Hang in there today. Don't check out. Hang in there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Bible sword drill. Who's there? Russ, I saw his hand first. Boys win. (laughs) The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That's our verse. So this verse is going to unfold, and we're going to look at a lot of different passages through the way. The only other verse you're going to have to turn to today is Isaiah 53, so you may want to thumb over and put your thumb there. This is going to unpack for us the whole sermon. Part one, part two. Part one is the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So why is it folly? And then to the other group of people, it is the power of God. So it's the same word, the word of the cross. So what is the word of the cross? It's the message of the cross. The message of the cross to some group of people is folly. To another group of people, it's power. And so we're just going to ask and try to answer it. Why? Why is it that some people hear the exact same message and they think that's folly? In fact, uh, Later on in this chapter in 1 Corinthians, uh, we hear that it is a stumbling block. The cross is a stumbling block. Galatians chapter 5 says that, Paul says that the cross is an offense, the offense of the cross. Billy Graham, I'll quote it later on, he preached a sermon called The Offense of the Cross. Why do some look at the cross and say, that's just foolishness, that's folly, it's ridiculous. And others, it's a stumbling block. They look at it, they hear the message of the cross, the word of the cross, and it's a stumbling block. They just can't accept it. I don't like that message. I can't agree with that message. And to others, it's just simply a fence. Their nose gets turned up. It's a stench to them. Why? And in that exact same message over here, there's another group of people, and they, it's the very power of God. They, they keep singing about the cross. They keep talking about the cross. Every time they gather together, they talk about the body and the blood of Jesus being broken. And for us, it's the power of God. So why? What could be so foolish about this cross, the message? So why is the message of the cross folly to the perishing? Okay, to answer that, we've got to talk a little bit about the judgment of God. The judgment of God. And we're going to back the judgment of God all the way, way back up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. We get a kind of a more detailed account about Adam and Eve in chapter 2. But in chapter 1, we see God creates everything. And, and after each thing that he creates, each day, he, he looks at it and says what? This is very good. Very good. Uh, Adam and Eve are created, the image of God, okay, full image bearers, both Adam and Eve are created in the image of God to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Same purpose, full equality of value and worth, and we get this word after they're created, we get, He looked over everything and God said, this is very good, not just good, very good, this is very good. 
We get this affirming word. Adam and Eve get this affirming word over their life. Uh, I'm looking, God is looking at Adam and Eve, and he looks at creation, and he gives them words and says, I affirm of you, you are very good. Okay? This is a judgment, the judgment of God over us. And we talk about the cross, and we talk about hell. We're going to get to judgment. So we have to talk about judgment. Why might this judgment on the cross be somewhat foolish to people? Why would it be folly to some? Okay, so Genesis 1, we get this affirming word, we get this validating word of God over humanity that you are very good. Now this is a, this is a validation from God that we love in our world today. We love this. We uh, crave validation. We search for it as humans. This is woven into the human experience, what it means to be human. Uh, we love encouragement, and encouragement is good, and it's godly, and it's right, but we also love uh, validation that goes beyond encouragement because we simply love praise coming our way. We, not, we may not say, hey, I love that, keep praising me, but in our minds, we, we love hearing a validated word over our life, do we not? Okay, it goes like this. I've got, we've got some friends here. I had a friend of mine come to the first service, and uh, um, if I'm open and honest, I've talked to you about this before, and I've left you all kind of confused on how to encourage me, and so I'm just going to confuse you a little bit further. Um, uh, I take encouragement and sometimes and run too far with it, and I get a little bit of a big head, but externally, um, you know, I'm always humble, so you never know it. Um, and, um, and, uh, so, uh, this validating word, we, we love it. So my friend Justin was here in first service and, uh, uh, and, and if he would come to me and say, you know, Jared, I've heard a lot of preaching in my day, but that's the first time I heard true preaching today. That was awesome. You are the best preacher I've ever heard. I mean, I, I can't say enough about it. That sermon was absolutely awesome. And then somebody else comes to me and says, I tell you what, that was the greatest sermon I've ever heard. And not only that, you are the greatest preacher I've ever heard. Thanks. Thank you. So it's all God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, hey, baby. Guess, guess what? Uh, we, we love affirming words spoken over our lives. I, I don't think it's just me. I think it's all, it's, it's all of it. It's woven into how we are. We search for it. And if we don't get it, we think it's because people don't really know our heart. If they really knew my heart, if they really knew my sincerity, I would be affirmed. They would affirm me. They would validate me. They would speak things nice over me or speak nice things over me. That's, we long for that. It, you know, if we're honest like that, yes, of, of course, it's woven into who we are. We got this word spoken over us in the garden. You are very good. And remnants of that, we long to hear that. We love, we want to hear that echo. You are very good. You are very good. You are very good. Uh, Oprah, which many of us don't go to for spiritual advice. Um, sadly, millions do in this country. And her pop psychology theology has infiltrated the church, by the way. And maybe you. And it's easy to say all oh, you people following Oprah. It hits churches, folks, not just people out there. Um, here's what Oprah said, her last show, and I think she started a new O network, not that I would know. But um, uh, she talks about the importance. She had somebody on, uh, on her show, the very last show, and she talked about uh, the importance of validation. Okay, and just, just hear this. It's kind of lengthy, but that's okay. You can deal with it. On Oprah's final episode of her wildly popular TV show, she highlighted the importance of validation. I've talked to nearly 30,000 people on this show. That's a lot of people. She said all 30,000 had one thing in common. They wanted validation. Validation, what is it? It's getting feedback from others that what I do, what I say matters to you. You hear me, you see me, you think of me, you thank me, you acknowledge my accomplishments, you appreciate my efforts. 
One of the great things about being in love is how often you receive a boatload of validation. You're so beautiful, you're so caring, you're so thoughtful, so smart. Such recognition makes you feel terrific about yourself and your loved one who is so appreciative of your best attributes. In contrast, one of the depressing things about a relationship that goes south is how often you receive a boatload of non-validating comments. You're needy, so selfish, so thoughtless, you're dumb. What a downer. No wonder your self-confidence plummets along, the, along with those loving feelings. Do we always need to receive validation from others? Or can we give it to ourselves? Okay, here we go. First and foremost, you need to give it to yourself. When you recognize your good traits, you are not being narcissistic. When you praise yourself for your accomplishments, provided you don't go overboard, you are not being self-centered. Indeed, if you praise yourself, you have a tendency to negate. If you don't praise yourself, you'll have a tendency to negate the validation you do receive. Oh, he's just saying that. He doesn't really mean it. Or you may end up being so hungry for validation that others will perceive you as excessively needy. If I didn't notice every little thing she does, she's on my case. So, so don't shy away from praising yourself and let the praise you receive from others be icing on the cake. So this is Oprah. This is on uh, psych, psychologypsychocentral.com or something. Uh, some people got it. Um, okay. We got some laughs today. This is great. I, didn't, I didn't expect laughs in the first part of this sermon, really. Um, okay, uh, so we, we like this, we crave it, we long for it. Speak an affirming word over my life. Somebody. Walt, Whit- Walt Whitman wrote a 32-page poem about himself, or 35, Song of Myself. I'm going to read every line. Um, nobody got that. Okay, that's another joke. Okay, I'm not. Song to myself. Now get this. I celebrate myself, I sing to myself, and I will amuse I, and, and what I amuse, uh, you shall amuse. For every atom belonging to me, as good belongs to you. Listen to this. Divine am I inside and out. And I make holy whatever I touch or am touched from. The scent of these armpits. Aroma finer than prayer. The head, my head, more than churches, Bibles, and all the creeds. If I worship one thing more than another, it shall be the spread of my own body. Okay. Um, That's nonsense. Right, Jim? That permeates our society. And we look for it and we long for it. If we don't get it, here's what many of us are told. We'll look to God. He'll give you validation. Now, here's where the band-aid begins to get ripped off. The score starts to build up. Before we get to that game-winning Grand Slam, let's ask that question. What, hap- what, what is the judgment of God over us after you are very good? After Genesis 1. What is it? You'll start to realize folly is going to start to rise to the surface for some of you. You'll start to see the judgment of God and you'll say, that's foolish. What is it? Well, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are told, don't eat of the fruit. You can actually eat of anything in this garden. God tells Adam, and Adam negates to tell his wife. And as she was right there, and as he was with her, she eats. If you eat of the fruit of the garden, you shall surely what? Die. God comes, and Adam and Eve know they're naked. They're exposed. They have shame before God. God calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? 
Adam, this woman, the woman, this serpent, the devil, past blame, God slays animals and covers their shame with the hide of animals, spills blood. The judgment laid upon Adam and Eve from God after they sinned, as they looked heavenward, was death. Correct? This was God's judgment over them. Death. Now, as we read this, keep in mind what's popular in modern society today about the image of self. And as we look up, when we see what's God's judgment on us, what is it? Okay, well, let's keep going. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, it's, it's death. Genesis chapter 6, we have another uh, judgment of God. God's judgment comes to uh, the world. He saves by grace Noah and Noah's family in this uh, thing called Noah's Ark. There's a bunch of animals, and uh, it's very clean in there, squeaky clean, and it's very nice. It's a nice kid story. And um, the waters come up, and, and everyone dies by being drowned to death. Uh, God's judgment, as they looked upward, over humanity was, here's, here's my verdict, death to you. That's, that's what I am deciding. This is what you have earned, death. We fast forward a little, little bit. We get to Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah, God saves Lot out by grace. Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we know them, legendary city. I mean, uh, full of debauchery and sexual immorality and pride. God's judgment comes down upon them, doesn't it? God judged that, okay, I'm looking at your life, and here's what you've earned, death. I mean, we know that about Sodom and Gomorrah, death. That's that's what you inhabitants of these cities, that's what you have earned is death. This is my verdict upon you. A holy God declares to Sodom and Gomorrah, you shall die. What about Egypt, God's people in Egypt? God redeems them out of Egypt, but by how? Through judgment. There's ten plagues. What is the judgment? The, the final judgment is Passover. It's a judgment of death, the firstborn. The, the mighty Egyptian army goes chasing after the people of God. They, what have I done? I've let the Egyptians, these slaves, I've let them go. And they go chasing after them. And God's judgment, the mighty, the, the, the strong men of Egypt, judged by God, they're drowned and they die. This is God's judgment on Egypt. So, Egypt looks upward. What's God's thoughts of me? Will He validate me? This is God's word to them. Death. Okay, what, is there any other, you know, any other thing that makes us want to cry? Jared, please tell us. Joshua. This book is... Very hard for skeptics and agnostics, and maybe for some of you, the book of Joshua, the Canaanite conquest. Boy, this doesn't seem like the God of the Bible. If you ever talk to a skeptic or an atheist or agnostic, this is what they want to talk about. Joshua. You see, if the starting point for us as people is that people are good, you're going to look at the gospel or the passages in Joshua, and you're going to say, boy, God is bad. But if our starting point is biblical, we say, God is good. Therefore, these people must be bad. The Canaanite conquest, how difficult it is for so many. Why? Why is it difficult? Well, God brings His people out of the wilderness into the promised land. What happens is, God tells them to do some things. And God is going to have judgment over the cities in the land of Canaan. 
Joshua 10, 40, 40 through 43 says this. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Geb, the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left nothing remaining, but devoted them to destruction, all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh, Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, the camp at Gilgal. Chapter 11, verse 14 and 15. Listen to this. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord commanded Moses, his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua. So Joshua did. He left nothing undone, all that the Lord commanded Moses. The very next chapter we hear that there was 31 kings devoted to destruction and kingdoms. All of them destroyed. In fact, actually all of those 31, there were actually kings and kingdoms that weren't destroyed. They didn't complete the conquest and God punished them for that. 31 kings and kingdoms. God's judgment upon them. What was it? Death. That's what it was. It was God's judgment on them. You can hear the skeptic uh, jump up, or the Christian for even, and say, yeah, but that's the God of the Old Testament. That's not the God of the New Testament. You ever heard that? Right? Yeah, that's, you know, we kind of shy away from that. No. Let's turn over to the New Testament. Love is patient. Love is kind. Which is true. Folly begins to rise to the surface for some. I don't like the judgment of God. Here's what Billy Graham said in his sermon, The Offense of the Cross. The number one reason the cross is offensive, it says to the world, you're a sinner. Here, here we go. Not Okay, here's what the cross does. It's not just judgment against Adam and Eve, or judgment against... Um, or judgment against the world in, in Genesis chapter 6, or ju- judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah, or God's judgment, His word to the Egyptians, or His word to the Canaanites in the Canaanite conquest. This is God's word to you and to the world. We look upward and long for validation. We love it from everybody else, and we look for and expecting God to affirm us. And here's God's word to us. It's a cross on a hill called Calvary, and it's the fires of hell. Your life doesn't measure up. I'm sorry. Okay, this is bottom of the seventh. Bottom of the eighth. We're still losing. Ten nothing. Hang in there. I'm telling you, this is where you'll be tempted to check out. I don't know if I can bear it. This is why some see the cross as folly right here, friends. The judgment of God comes down and it says you don't measure up. We are so sin-soaked that we think this is folly. We think God does approve of us. Oprah sure does. Walt Whitman thinks his armpits are divine. Who's right? God or Walt Whitman? God or Oprah? 
folly to the world. It's a stumbling block and offense. That's baseball swing the bat. We walk out. We check out. We hear the crowd roar. How on earth do some people see that as the power of God? Why do we sing about it? Why do we hoop and holler today? The last three songs, there's going to be a song of response, and then we're going to have two songs. We're just going to celebrate. And if the Holy Spirit presses in on you and reveals and opens yet afresh and anew the gospel of Jesus, you will not be able to not shout, not jump, not sing, not praise, not go out those doors, the happiest people in the world. This is the judgment of God over us. How on earth is this the power of God? So to the second group of people, this is what the passage says, but for those who are being saved, so us, Christians, for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Listen to the reading of the word. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Hear that word. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here is the glorious good news, friends. Here, the bat is swung. It was a fastball. Boom. Grand slam. Oh my goodness, the news is turning. Christ died in your place. The judgment coming your way. You don't add up. You deserve death. You you deserve eternal hell. You deserve nothing from me. And that's a right judgment. Jesus said, I'll step in and take that. And it was the will of His Father to do this. We don't, friends, just get a hand slap. We get a Savior on a tree. He died in our place. The verdict of our life, you don't measure up. Get this. Our sweet King, Lord, Lamb, Jesus. 
He got a judgment on him that says, you don't measure up. Your sin was accounted as his sin. Now, Jesus did not become a sinner. He was counted as one. And the judgment you deserve, and the judgment I deserve, was laid upon him. You see, it's folly if you don't think you deserve that. If you don't think you deserve that, then the word of the cross is folly to you. Jesus died for you. He died in your place. The judgment of God came down on him instead of you. But, okay, that's not it. It's not just that he died in your place, but he did something else. God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was judged as if he lived our life. But get this. We are judged as if we lived Jesus' life. What? We were judged, if you're in Christ, as if we lived the life that Jesus lived. Let's talk about how spectacular the life of Jesus was. Let's talk about it. If anybody gets an affirming word, we know it's not us. Jesus does, however. He gets an affirming word spoken over over him. Get this, Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus obeyed his Father to the point of death. Even when... He was being counted as a sinner. He didn't become one. He didn't turn into a murderer. He was counted as one. He was obedient to the point of death. Now, false accusation or what seems to be false accusation comes your way. And how much do I want to start defending myself? And here is Jesus, obedient to the point of death. Talk about a life that deserves validation, correct? Averms a very good. I'm proud of you. You have done it. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Can anybody claim hold to any statement like that for yourself? Tempted, yet without sin. Are you kidding me? Yet Jesus, here he is, living his life before the eyes of his heavenly Father every moment of every day. And he is without sin. What a life well lived. What a glorious life indeed. Oh, be perfect, yet getting accusations against you. Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange. Hear this. Because He was perfect, Jesus, after He heard this affirming word for His Father, this affirming word remained to the point of death over a life, a perfect life lived. Listen to this. Matthew 3.16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water and behold... 
The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Friends, here's our validation. Here's our validation. If you're in Christ, those words are your words. His life is counted as yours. You have been judged and Christ died in your place. The hell, hell is for those who reject that, who don't believe that. God's judgment still weighs upon you if you are not in Christ. Don't doubt it for a second. He knows your heart and that's why hell awaits you. And you'll see that and say, Jared, I don't agree with that. The Bible says that some are going to see this as folly. And I want to plead with you and beg and do everything I can. I pray that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes and you will agree with God and stop disagreeing with Him. And then for us in this room, I was a Christian for many, many years. Godly parents, great church. I didn't know the gospel. I thought I was saved because of what I did. I thought I was right before God because of me. This idea of Christ's life counting as mine made no difference on my life. And now I stand as a man fully forgiven and counted. I will one day stand before a holy God and hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I am now called a son of the living God. If anybody has the Spirit of God, he is a son of God. And the Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit that we are indeed sons. And the Spirit works within us with groanings too deep for words, crying out, Abba, Father, if you are in Christ, the pleasure of God is over your life. There we go. Like, this is why we celebrate. This is why we sing. This is why we jump up and down. This right here, this news. The cross of Christ. We don't get past it. It's those who are being saved. Verse 18. Look, go back to 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. You in this room, if you're over the cross, you need to go back to the cross. You need to look again. For us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The cross of Christ, Jesus' life. Death and resurrection, this is power on display. A God who is just to punish sin and sinners. And a God who is loving to send His Son to die for those sinners. This is for us. The cross for Christians. What do we do now? What do we do? Well, we behold. We behold. We pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, help me to see the depth of this. I don't want to fall in the camp that says this is foolish. I want to step into this reality of it's all about you and what you've done and I want to worship and celebrate you and all my joy, the source of my joy, the foundation for my roots to dig down deep be the gospel of Jesus. Not some Oprah mumbo-jumbo or Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman nonsense. You need the approving word because of Jesus over your life and in your life. You will never get it any other way. Because of this, verse 30 and 31. Andy, go ahead and come on. Go ahead and come on out. Verse 30 and 31 in 1 Corinthians. Look with me. And because of him, who? Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. You ever thought of that? It's not because of you, you're in Christ Jesus. It's because of God. What, what do you do with information like that? 
Well, if it's because of me that I'm in Christ Jesus, I can thank me. But if it's because of God that I'm in Christ Jesus, I must have to thank God. Yep. Like, okay, a song in your soul. Joy filling from your mind to your heart, your heart beating. God, thank you. It's because you that I'm in Christ Jesus. The life I have in Christ, that's because of God. Thank you, God. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here's your time to boast. In the Lord. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to play one song, and this song is for the first half people. Okay, this is for those in here who've never stood and saw your sin. You thought that if everybody else wouldn't affirm you, you thought if you'd look upward that God would affirm you over your life. And, and you've just seen that it was my sin that held him there. The word of God over my life is I deserve death, but it doesn't stop there. I've seen for the first time this morning that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And it's your time to come up this morning and meet Jesus. Good Friday. You can come and pray. And then, okay, and you'll notice this for those who are for those who are being saved. As you sing these words, you think about these words, and watch what happens internally. Like, ooh, you paid it all. All. Not some. He fully died for me, not partially. There wasn't some of it that I kept over here that he was unaware of. He knew it all. And the righteous wrath of God that was on display in the book of Joshua is nothing compared to the righteous wrath of God on the cross. Poured out on the sun was coming your way Jesus took friends that like I'm going to plead with you I've been around Christians my entire life there are so few Christians I know that actually know the gospel it means so little to them and then we're going to sing two songs after that We're going to sing how our God is not dead, He's alive. And then we're going to sing and we're going to shout, Happy Day. He washed my sins away. And then by God's grace, we're going to walk out those doors this week and we remember what Christ has done for us. And we're going to show the world how different Christians are. Because we know who God is and what He has done for us. We know the approving word over our lives because we get the credit of what Christ did. And we're never the same changed. Let's pray. God, work. Holy Spirit, only you can grant repentance. Only you can do, only you can do this. And I just ask that you would work in power. God, I, I know there are people in this room. I know. I know for certain there are people in this room that don't know you. And I pray, just in a classic way, that their grip would get tight on that pew in front of them. And that they would walk forward. And they would say, I know that salvation does not land in my hands. That my life has earned a cross. And I want to agree with God. But I want to agree with God that Jesus died in my place. 
And I trust and believe that Jesus paid it all. And then for us in this room, God, unleash joy. True joy. Unleash it. May we be a happy people this morning. Work in power. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, if anybody wants to come forward, you're free. I'll be up here. Ralph will be up here. Find an elder, a friend, or whoever. Talk to him. Let's meet Jesus this morning. If you don't, stand here. Let's just worship Jesus together.